Good morning, everyone. Um, I hope that you are okay and you're doing well. It's a really rainy day, not the kind of day that you step out of the house and think, wow, this is going to be a great day. But uh, it's the day that the Lord has made. This is something my dad growing up every Sunday morning, he would be singing in the house. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will be glad and rejoice in it. And it's so amazing that we can still worship together. It's so amazing that we can still be in the presence of God no matter where you're, you're at right now. And I, I, I wonder this morning um, what kind of setup you have. You know, this is kind of like deja vu. We've done this lockdown before. This isn't our first, in, the, in English we say, this isn't my first rodeo. We've done this before. And so maybe you've perfected your Sunday morning ritual. Or maybe not. Maybe you just got up and you just had a late morning. You're in bed still. You're just logging onto your phone and watching on your phone. Or maybe you're a morning person and you got up and you had your breakfast ready. You're dressed already. You connected your laptop or your TV and you have your coffee and you're watching online. Whatever your setup is right now, whatever your, your surroundings look like right now. Maybe you have a child screaming and you can't really hear what I'm saying right now. But whatever it is, if you're watching me, if you're tuning in this morning that I really want to emphasize that I'm speaking to you. We're worshiping together this morning with the people that are here, the worship team and the sound team, multimedia team that is here, and every one of you that is at home watching, we're worshiping together even if we are distant. You know, I was speaking, Ruben and I were speaking with the Riverside Kishkai leadership this week, and we were saying that one of the hardest things in this pandemic time of leading church and of being church is stepping into this calling of unity as a church. It's the hardest challenge, I would say, is this feeling of unity that we have been called to. You know, Jesus tells the Father, he says, God, that they may be one just as I am one with the Father. And what a challenge it is right now for us to feel united when we're all in our different homes, we're all facing different difficulties. It's hard to catch up. At Riverside Lisbon, we love being together. We love food. I mean, we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together if we can. We love tasting food from all over the world, and food is what brings us together. And for the past year, we haven't really been able to do that, especially now. And, and we may feel so distant. But this is what Paul says to the church in Philippi, and I want to remind you of this this morning. Paul says when speaking of unity, he says in Philippians, oh, I got the clicker today. He says in Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is good news because we see by this verse that unity doesn't necessarily require us to be together in the same physical space. Paul is saying to the church, be of one mind, of one love, be of one accord, of one faith, praising the same God with the same obedience, with the same heart, with the same attitude. Be one church in your faith. And so this morning, I want to I ask you to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you, if you're on the live, if you're here, then you can speak with me, and I would ask you to speak with me, or even if you want to tune into the live so that you can, you can know who's watching with us. But if you're at home, then I want to ask you to engage with me as I preach. Comment on the live. Share what God is speaking to you. Say amen. Write amen in bold if there's something that you agree with. And my prayer is that 
as you engage with me in this message, that I'm not going to see it right now, I'm not going to see your comments, but the people who are watching will. And my prayer is that somehow we will feel closer together this morning. That somehow we will unite in this faith. Even just knowing that you're there might be an encouragement to another brother or sister who is watching. And my prayer is that we will step into this unity that we have been called to of one mind, one love, one accord. So I want to invite you this morning, don't just listen to me preach, but preach with me, engage with me. So we've just entered this message series called God of Miracles. And last week, Reuben began this message series with um, the story of Jesus multiplying the fish and the loaves for the 5,000, more than 5,000. And it was just such an incredible message of, of what God does when we respond with compassion. And it's really been in my heart and my mind this week, and it's challenged my thinking and, and the choices that I make. But this week, as I thought about it's my turn to, to pick up on this series. And I started thinking about the different miracles in my head, and I, I decided to go big. Now, I know that all miracles are big. That's really the point of them, right? <laughs> the dictionary describes a miracle as being something extraordinary, something that's inexplicable by human law or, or scientific law. And so it can only be that event or that something, that act can only be attributed to someone divine. It can only be credited to God himself who is supernatural and able. But as I skimmed over the different miracles in the Bible, I decided, my, or my mind or my heart was led to a miracle that is pretty massive. Now, I would actually be curious what comes to your mind when I say a massive miracle, which one comes to your mind. But I was led to Exodus chapter 14 or 13 through 16 to the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, this is a huge, incredible miracle. And, and I want us to imagine it right now. Just, just picture it with me right now. This is the story of two million people. Some people say it, it could have been between two million to six million people walking on dry land. The Bible describes that there was water on their right and a wall of water on their left. Can you imagine this miracle? Can you imagine this is the story of two million displaced people finding their way home? Can you imagine their celebration? Can you imagine them, I mean, can you imagine them walking and seeing this wall of water on their left and on their right and thinking, what in the world is happening? Can you imagine their songs as they left Egypt? And I need to give you some context today so that you can really picture and internalize this scene with me. See, sometimes you need to go to the depth of the context. Sometimes we need to go to the depth of the pain so that we can understand the magnitude of the miracle. See, because the, the Red Sea, the parting of the waters, it, it's pretty amazing. But if you know where God was taking them from, and if you know where God was leading them to, then the parting of the Red Sea is not just a physical phenomenon, but it becomes a supernatural, miraculous path to freedom. That, that walking on the dry land, all of a sudden it becomes a path of grace and of mercy and of freedom. And it's beautiful. You see, the Israelites had been in bondage for over 400 years. That's generation after generation 
of slavery. I don't know. I, I don't have no idea what slavery is like. I was born into a country where I can do what I want to do. I can be who I want to be. But for 400 years, the Israelites had been defined and confined to an identity of slaves. Their captivity stole away all of their rights. Their lives were characterized by limitation and subjugation and oppression. Every day they suffered. Every day they experienced pain. They had no will of their own. They were tired and exhausted. And so they cried out to God. For generations, they cried out to God, please do something. And God listens. And so our story begins in Exodus chapter 3. The Bible says in verse 7, 7 through 8. Then the Lord said, I have seen how cruelly my people are being treated in Egypt. And I've heard them cry out to be rescued from their slave drivers. I know all about their sufferings. And so I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians. See, this is the story of the greatest rescue mission ever. God was literally breaking their chains open. They were being taken from a life of no rights, of no will, of complete oppression to a life of freedom where they were going to be able to be who God really wanted them to be, who God had created them to be. See, sometimes I think that as Christians, we don't recognize the context enough. And so we don't realize the magnitude of the miracle. In the same way that we can be amazed by the Red Sea, we can be amazed by the cross. And as Christians, we, we refer to the cross and we think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and it is amazing. The cross is amazing. But if we were to acknowledge more often, even on a daily basis, where God has rescued us from, you and I, where God has rescued me, Gabby, from, if I was to think about that more often, and where he is leading me to, where God is taking me to, to an eternity with him forever and ever, then all of a sudden I think the cross would no longer just be a religious symbol of our faith, but all of a sudden the cross would be our path, our supernatural path to freedom, paved by this mercy and this grace and this incredible forgiveness. And maybe you're watching and you're thinking to yourself, well, what did Jesus rescue me from? What do I need saving from? Even Christians I hear don't really know how to answer this question. I mean, the name Jesus literally means savior, so it implies that we need saving, but what from? With the Egyptians, I can understand they were slaves and then they were taken to freedom, but as Christians, what do I need saving from? And some people think that, that Jesus came to save us from an unfulfilled life. And I hear preachers and I hear different churches preach this gospel that Jesus came to save you from a life without fulfillment. Maybe your relationships aren't working out. Or maybe you're not happy in your job. Or maybe you planned a life for yourself and it's not really this. But come to Jesus and he will fix it. Come to Jesus. He has saved you so that he can make your relationships better. And he can, he can give you that dream job. And he can make everything in your life finally work out. Or some people think that Jesus has come to save us from our bad habits. He's come to save us from, from and give us control over our angry tempers, our sexual sin, our drinking, our smoking, and, and come to Jesus and everything will be different and everything will be easier when you're rescued by him. And while all of this is true, 
that Jesus does give us a new reason to live. He does give us a purpose and an identity in him that truly satisfies. While it is true that through your salvation in Christ Jesus, you will experience the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out and giving you victory over your addictions and your old lifestyle, these cannot be the primary reasons of our salvation. This is not what Jesus came to save us from. Why? Let me give you just three reasons. Number one, because not everyone in the world is unfulfilled. Quite frankly, this idea of being fulfilled is a byproduct of a Western culture. There are plenty of thousands of people in the world who quite honestly don't really expect too much of life, and so there is nothing to fulfill. And on the other hand, there are people in this world who are fulfilled, who are happy, who are perfectly content with their job and their money and their family and the life that they've set up for themselves. And number two, because not everyone needs saving from addiction. There are many people who live their lives with a certain measure of self-control. And so you see these reasons, they don't apply to everyone. And yet the Bible says that we all need salvation. And number three, and I think this is one of the harshest reasons or the most clear reasons. Because if you meet a Christian who has been a Christian for any time over a day, then he or she will testify that things don't necessarily get easier when you become a Christian. Jesus is not a quick fix to everything that's wrong in our lives. In fact, if you speak to a Christian, they may testify that things only get harder when you come to Jesus. Why? Because all of a sudden, you are called to a different standard of holiness and purity, and you can't do business like you used to, and you can't follow your sexual desire like you used to, and all of a sudden, you're being mocked by people because of your faith, and Satan, who is not satisfied with your faith, just keeps on attacking you and attacking you, and things aren't getting easier. And so if that's what you were hoping for when you came to Jesus, if you wanted him to be a fix for your life, then I'm afraid that you bought into a false promise. These cannot be the primary reasons why Jesus came to save us. This is the primary reason. The real problem, why you and I and everyone needed salvation is because of sin. It's a universal issue. And we all fall into that category, whether we're black or white, whether we have a lot in this life or a little, whether we're happy or unhappy, we have all sinned. The Bible says that we've all broken God's law. So what is God's law? This morning, I just want to make everything real clear for us. What is God's law? Jesus simplifies it and he breaks it down into two things. He says in Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. We have all broken this law. We've all failed to put God first in our lives. We've all hurt other people. We've all let this ambition and selfishness and pride be first and take the place of God. And the word says that God is angry at that sin. 
In the same way that you and I are angry at, at, at sin and at crime at, and, and at injustice, God is angry at sin because his standard is so much higher. And the Bible says that the consequences of that sin was guilt and it was hell, which is just eternal separation from God, eternity without God. And so for us to understand the magnitude of the miracle that is our salvation, that is the cross, we need to recognize where we would be without the cross, who we would be without the cross. The Bible says in Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the power of darkness and brought us safe into the kingdom of his dear son by whom we are set free, that is, our sins are forgiven. Wow, thanks to the cross, we are forgiven, we are set free, set free. Our, our chains have been liberated, and we've been given a new life in Christ Jesus. We've been given a chance to start over. In fact, the Bible says that every morning his mercies are new, thanks to his forgiveness, thanks to his mercy, we can start afresh, and the Holy Spirit can sanctify us, and change us, and take the old away, and bring the new. It says in 2 Corinthians, there Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. When you think about the cross, can you picture it with me? It is your path to freedom. It is your path paved by grace and mercy and forgiveness where God is taking you away from a life of sin where you were bondage, where you were, where you were chained, where you were subjugated to fear and to pride, and he's taken you from that into a life where you can be who God created you to be, where you can have true peace, where you can find your identity, not as a slave to sin, but as a child of God. And as a child of God, you will be led into an eternity with him where one day all men and women will say, holy, holy are you, and we will worship him together, the king of kings. This is where God has taken us from. Can we worship God? Can we understand this morning the magnitude of the cross? Let's not take it for granted. Our salvation is the greatest miracle of all. But let's head back to the story. After Moses pleads with Pharaoh and God sends 10 different plagues, the king of Egypt finally agrees to let the people go. It says in Exodus 13, 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So the people are, are free and they're headed towards Canaan. Now, the Bible tells us that there was a shorter way, but that God intentionally led them through the desert road towards the Red Sea. This is hot, dry, barren wasteland. I can just imagine the people walking, and they're happy, and they're singing, and, and suddenly they start to see a body of water in the horizon. Now, wait a minute. This is not supposed to be happening. That's not what you want to be seeing at this point. I mean, later in this chapter, we read that Pharaoh changed his mind, and now he's sending chariots and his whole army, the best of the best, to go after these Israelites. And so a body of water is not what you want to be seeing right now. So now we have two problems. One, if there was a shorter, seemingly easier way, why would God lead them the long way around? 
And two, the whole Egyptian army is coming after them and they're headed towards a dead end. How in the world are they going to cross this Red Sea? How are they going to escape this impossible situation? You can't exactly make a U-turn with two million people. They are headed towards disaster. So let's answer the first question. The Bible says that the shorter way was through Philistine country where the people of Israel would have had to encounter hostility. They would have had to face a war. They had just spent, we need to understand, they had just spent 400 years in slavery. And they were not prepared for war. See, God wasn't just concerned about reaching the destination. He cared about their hearts. He wanted them to truly know him and to rely on him. He knew their hearts were still fearful and they couldn't handle a war. Sometimes God brings us the long way around because he knows that we are not prepared to face the challenges that await us in the shorter route. Sometimes God takes us the long way around because he knows we are not prepared to reach our destination just yet. You see, you and I, we tend to plan our lives according to a, a predefined schedule. The plan includes finishing our studies by a certain time, getting married by a certain time, uh, steadily building our career, and having children at a certain age. But life doesn't always work that way. And sometimes it may feel like God is leading us in the opposite direction of where we're meant to go. But here's the thing we need to remember, and I want to remind you this morning. God's priority is always your heart. At times, the long way will spare you from so much that you are unaware of. And at other times, the long way will allow you the opportunity to know God like never before. The long way might take you to a seemingly dead end so that you can witness the parting of the Red Seas in your own life. You see, God's purpose for the people of Israel was not just to give them a plot of land. His purpose was to give them a changed heart. And so if that's what you want this morning, if you want a changed heart for yourself, if you want to truly know God, then pray this prayer with me. Comment below and pray this prayer. God, take me the long way. I know it's a hard prayer. It is not going to be easy, but God, take me the long way if it means that I'm going to get to know you deeper. If it means that I'm going to see your power in my life, take me the long way. The second question, they've reached a dead end. And what are they supposed to do? The Red Sea is before them and the army of Egypt is behind them. And it's interesting that in Exodus chapter 14, we read in verse 8, I don't have it up here, but we read in verse 8 that the people of Israel marched out boldly. They were excited. They were courageous. God had just sent the 10 plagues to Egypt. God is on their side, and they are marching out boldly. And then in verse 10, just literally two verses later, when they realize that they are being pursued, it says that they were terrified. It says that they're desperate. They went from bold to terrified in a matter of days. When your relationship with God is merely theoretical or religious, 
when you don't truly know him in your own heart, when you don't know his heart and his promises over your life, then your life too will be this roller coaster of emotions and you'll go from, from boldly to terrified in a matter of days. When things are well and going fine for you, you'll be bold and you'll be excited and you'll be grateful to God for who he is. But at the first sign of trouble, You'll be overcome with worry and anxiety and, and, and might even be, become depressed and maybe even panic. And fear will take the place of faith. And this is how the Bible describes faith. It says, to have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. So when you decide, when you declare the word of, of God as the truth in your life, then just as your eyesight is the sense that, that gives you the evidence of the material world, in other words, I see and so I can believe. Because there is light in this room, I see and I can walk confidently between this chair, these chairs in the same way Well, faith is the sense that gives us evidence of the spiritual world, of the spiritual realm. It is faith that enables us to see a new reality. Not just this flimsy, imaginary hope, but it is faith that gives us the confidence to walk in Christ, knowing a new reality. It's faith that says, no matter how impossible or scary the situation is, if God says he knows the plans he has for me, not plans to harm me, but plans to give me a hope in a future, it's faith that says, if God says that he works all things together for my good, then faith, does, faith says that I can overcome all things through Christ who strengthens me. Faith says, not just I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but faith says I can overcome. There is no Red Sea too deep for God. There is no, no sickness too difficult for God. There is no dead end for God. Faith will turn your dead end into an opportunity for God to move, into an opportunity for God to part the Red Seas in your life. I see so many Christians live like the rest of the world that doesn't know God. In this constant roller coaster of emotions. Now, don't get me wrong. It is only human for us to be afraid and to be saddened when a situation arises. It was normal for the Israelites to be scared in this situation. I mean, they are being pursued by, by an army of people who had been their slave drivers for 400 years, and they see a body of water before them. It's normal for them to be scared. But there comes a point in our lives where we have to decide if we are going to choose to live by faith or by sight. If we want to be defined by the situation and how terrifying it looks, or if we are going to be defined by the God who says that he loves us and cares deeply for us, who says he has never failed us and will never fail us ever. It was normal for the Israelites to feel afraid in that situation, but it was not okay for the Israelites to let that fear overcome them and let that fear take them into an anger that accused God for not caring, accused Moses for his terrible leadership. That was not okay for them to let fear take complete control over their, their attitude. See, many people were surprised by my dad's posture when he was diagnosed with cancer last year. 
He wasn't shaken. He wasn't panicking. He wasn't fearful. He was confident. He remained joyful. And it wasn't this joy of denial of what was happening. No, you could tell it was a joy that was firm in the faith that he has in the God who has been faithful to him for the past 35 years. He has experienced the goodness of God too many times to let fear take the place of faith. And what an example that was to so many. What an example it was, and, and, and what, in, what an inspiration it was to me as well. When I encounter my Red Sea, something as impossible as cancer, as terrifying as cancer, will I let faith arise and take and, and leave no room for fear? And I asked my dad yesterday, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm preaching and I'm actually going to mention you. Would you do a video? Would you share with us just your very personal um, story of what it was like to be diagnosed with cancer, what it was like to, to face something as, ter as terrifying as, as that. Would you share that with us? And so he filmed a short three-minute video, and we're going to play that right now for you. So let's turn our attention to the screen, which I guess you already are looking. <laughs> I'm going to turn my attention to the screen. Red Sea experience. It was about um, late 2019 when that terrible experience began for me. And I call it my 3C experience. It began when late 2019 I was diagnosed with cancer. They found a malignant melanoma and I continue to be in treatments until today. After the cancer, we entered 2020 and we all know what happened, the next sea, COVID. And during the whole time of this pandemic, I have not stopped loving, not stopped serving, um, did multiple funerals, uh, visited people in homes and hospitals, never fearing the, the COVID uh, virus or the coronavirus that everybody was so afraid of. We just kept on going, loving and serving. And then later in the year, 2020, I was diagnosed with um, TRE1 malfunction. It's something in the brain, don't worry about it. I still have a brain. But um, all these things, uh, people were amazed at the way I reacted to it. People were, aren't you scared? Well, yes, fear is uh, very common and it's something that all human beings experience. But the way that I managed to overcome my fears and the way that I managed to face all these things is what I'd like to share with you today. And just very quickly, I can sum it up in three things. Belief, strength, and trust. The first one, belief. I believe in God. I believe in what I preach and what I preach. My life belongs to Jesus. The Bible says nothing can separate me from his love. Not life, not death, not sickness or disease. Nothing can separate me from God. And so I have this unwavering, this unshakable belief in my Lord that he's in control of my life. And that gives me such peace. The second thing is strength. It's not in my strength. This doesn't come from me. This is a supernatural gift from God. He gives me the strength and the ability to continue each day. I know if God wasn't in my life, I would probably crumble under the fear, like many people do. I cannot do this on my own. And it's in His strength that He has carried me throughout this time, and as He has indeed throughout my life, in the multiple things that have occurred to me and happened to me like bike accidents and so forth. 
And then the other one is trust. The ability to let go and just trust in God. To know that when I get to those Red Sea experiences, to know when the enemy is behind me and the seemingly impossible is in front of me, that my God will make a way. He did it in the past and He can do it again. He is the God that I can trust. He's never failed. And I want to encourage each one of you, no matter what you're facing today, may you trust in the Lord with all your heart. And I will leave you with this verse from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. We so often do that. We lean on our own understanding. In all thy ways, not in some of our ways, but in all our ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. And that's what kept me going. The Lord directed my path because instead of leaning on myself or trusting in my own abilities or caving into my own fears, the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. So I placed my future, I placed my family, I placed my ministry, I placed my life in the Lord's hands. And the one who hasn't failed me yet will not fail me. I hope this helps you this morning and I pray God's richest blessing as Gabby ministers the word of God. May you be enriched, may you be strengthened in the power of the Lord. We love you and we are so grateful and so blessed by the ministry of Riverside Lisbon. God bless you. Awesome. If you didn't take anything else from my message this morning, then just take <laughs> what my dad said in these three minutes. And, and it's amazing because it doesn't just come from someone who's preaching. It's someone who's living what they preach. And that is an example of faith. But today I want to give you this promise for you to remember for yourself. And this is the kind of promise that someone like my dad and, and like myself, when I face my own fears, and my own troubles in my life, I cling to this promise in Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. It says, do not be afraid. And take this for yourself. Almost put your name in there if it helps you internalize. This is the Lord speaking to you. Do not be afraid. I will save you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the deep waters, I will be with you. Your troubles will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. The hard trials that come will not hurt you. See, Moses had the same conviction. Despite the attitude of those following him, Moses knew who was leading them, and he trusted God. So with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians behind them in a moment of what looked like certain death, this is what Moses told the people. Moses answered, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. How be still is the opposite of what we feel like doing in times of crisis. Fear tells us to run and retreat. Impatience will tell us to jump into the Red Sea before God has even parted it. Pride will tell us to do something, anything. Just don't be still. Whatever it is, whatever it takes, pride will tell you to move. I believe the words of Moses here are were God's way of dealing with their hearts. By this verse, we should not interpret that faith is about being still and doing nothing when we encounter difficulty. Faith is not passive. Faith acts. 
You see, just after Moses tells the people to be still, God tells them to move. <laughs> we read in Exodus 14, 15 through 16, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. So what should we do in times of crisis? Exactly that. Be still but move. Comment on that. If you can remember this throughout this week, be still but move. Be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that nothing is impossible for him. If you see both my dad and I and everything we say, we're saying this expression when we encounter the seemingly impossible. See, it only seems impossible, but for God it isn't. Be still and know. Let that peace, let that stillness take let that conviction of God's promises take the place of stress and anxiety. The Bible says don't worry about anything, but let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your heart and guard your mind. And then move. <laughs> Start walking towards the impossible. Stretch out your hand and believe God for a miracle. So apply for the jobs that you're not meant to get. Study the, the, the courses that everyone sells, says you shouldn't and you're not going to make it. Believe for the diagnosis and the, the good medical reports that the doctor says you're not going to re receive. Persist in the marriage that everyone else says you should give up on. Move. Move confidently in the direction of the impossible because the God who leads us is a God of miracles. He's the God who parted the Red Seas. He is still the God who will part the Red Sea in your own life so that you can walk on dry ground. Be still and know that he is God, but move and be part of the miracle. That's what we should do in times of crisis. And I hope that you internalize this. And I hope that you, you take it as your own truth. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And this message, really, I know I was telling Reuben before we would preach, and, and some people would be in a time of victory, and some people would be in a time of struggle, and, and you were speaking to people who were in very different places in their lives, but now it's all, almost as if we're preaching to a room where everyone is struggling where everyone is going through extreme hardship. This COVID-19 has changed our lives. I mean, just yesterday, we were looking at news of New Zealand and how they're COVID-free and having concerts. And, and we were looking at that as if it's some utopia, this imaginary future or past that we're never going to see again. And Portugal somehow has gone from okay to terrible. Things are bad and it's affecting our mental health and our physical health and our economy and, and, and everything in our lives. And I don't know what it's brought into your life, but whatever it is, whatever the hardship, whatever the impossibility, as Christians we can stand on the firm foundation of faith. We don't have to be this roller coaster of emotions of going from bold to terrified, of going from feeling excited to all of a sudden we can find stability in the peace that God gives us. We can find stability in the identity that we have. I am a child of God. This is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice in it. And here I am, God. Use me. Give me a changed heart.
heart. Take me the long way if that's the best way. God, I will submit to your leadership for your glory, God. His priority is always your heart. And so number one, let's acknowledge the context. Recognize what God really saved us from. Where he is leading us to. And let's be thankful for our salvation. If God did nothing else from, for you from this day onwards, what he has done is enough. Let's focus on the miracle of the cross. Number two, let's pray for God to lead us, even if that means taking us the long way, because it's in the long way that we truly draw near to him and see his heart for us. And number three, Let's be still and let's be ready to move. Having peace to trust Him and faith to believe in His miracle power. Let's worship God. The God who is the God of miracles. And I would encourage you, as we're worshiping, if you haven't done that already, we're going to take communion after the song. We're going to remember the cross. So if you haven't gotten your bread and your juice, your wine, I'm going to keep have communion with your coffee even. <laughs> I'm not a traditionalist. It's, it's a symbol of what God has done. We're going to take communion just now, but let's worship together. Let's continue to be in this community of faith. And I pray that my faith will encourage your faith, and your faith will encourage the faith of your brother, and your brother's faith will encourage the faith of his neighbor, and be a chain reaction. Let faith arise in this church. Let faith arise in the body of Christ that when the world is desperate, when the world is fearful, we can stand in confidence because faith is the sense that allows us to see a new reality and that reality gives us the boldness to trust in a God who cares for us and 